You are listening to the Marketing Doctor Podcast, the place for marketing insights and intelligence for today's fast-paced business world. The opinions expressed on this program are exactly that, opinions, and therefore subject to debate and discussion at any time. This program is produced by Granite Partners, marketing consultants and advisors for middle market businesses and nonprofit organizations nationwide. For more information, articles, speaking engagements, book purchases, and other services, log on to www.themarketingdocs.com. Now, here's the host of the Marketing Doctor program, Dave Polis. Hello, and welcome to the Marketing Doctor podcast, the program for and about marketers and the practice of marketing in today's commercial America. I'm your host, Dave Polis, the Marketing Doctor, and today's topic is, is the right brain the right brain, specifically as it relates to energizing your audience for sales conversion. First, let's get a definition of what this right brain is all about. You've probably heard rumors and myths and things about it. What it's all about is researchers early on in the 20th century determined that there was what's called brain lateralism, which means one hemisphere of the brain would control or be in charge of certain functions, and the left hemisphere of the brain would be in charge of others. And they defined these as various different personality traits, and you had either a right brain personality or a left brain personality, depending on how literal you were, how coordinated you were, how creative you were, how math inclined you were. And they broke down the two hemispheres of the brain and and assigned these separate functions to them based on some relatively small and relatively flawed psychological studies done back in the 1940s, which was an area rife with uh, research and discovery and all sorts of things. But they didn't have a lot of the peer review and a lot of the other things that go on now for scientific reporting. And this has later been revised and and reviewed and looked at. Um, The original concept was that if you could appeal, as far as marketing goes, to people with the right brain, the right brain was responsible for the emotional concept of what people wanted. All purchasing behavior has been deemed to be emotional. Anybody that's bought a house or a car knows that there's a lot of emotion going on in almost any purchase. And in fact, all purchases are geared and tied to an emotional response. And we'll talk a little bit about that later. But the original concept was that if advertising and marketing could appeal to the right side of the brain, the right hemisphere that controlled the emotion, they could probably be more effective because that would spur an emotional response, which would spur purchasing, which would drive people to the store and buy stuff. Uh, it turns out this is incorrect. A research study released in 2013 by a team at the University of Utah took over 1,100 subjects and performed what's called a functional MRI, which means they inject dye into your bloodstream and it shows up on the scan and you are scanned while you are conscious and awake. And they give you various stimuli, uh, some intellectual, some emotional and see what the pattern of brain activity is that lights up what hemisphere of your brain on the scan. Very scientific, large pool of respondents, large pool of subjects, and exhaustive testing and questioning with a control group, blind study doubles, the whole thing. Very, very well conducted and very well done. As it turns out, certain functions are limited to one hemisphere of the brain or the other, but there is so much what's called cross-lateralization, which means no matter what hemisphere is really in charge, There is so much involvement with the other hemisphere that it's really almost moot to try and appeal to one as opposed to the other. All the sensors are receptive all the time, and they will actually 
download or delegate functions when needed when that part of the brain is available. So you're using most of your processing power regardless of what's actually the input. So things are not nearly as cut and dried as right brain, left brain would have you believe. Now, what does all this have to do with marketing? What it really has to do with marketing is that all sales are emotional. And no matter the size, or gravity, or scale of the purchase, every purchase is emotional. And we have to appeal to the emotion in order to trigger a response that's going to be reliable and repeatable and usable in spurring a purchase. That's what marketing and advertising is all about. You use your intelligence. People think that their decisions are, are based on intelligence and they rationalize things here and there. Those decisions are not really intelligence-based. What it is, is people rationalizing through an intelligent argument the way they feel. They, they know in their minds and emotionally they would really like this product or really like to buy this or really like to have that. But they can't explain that I just want this like a two-year-old. They have to find a way to intellectualize it so they can explain the need or the desire to others. So they find reasons. And those are often the reasons that you see listed as benefits or features or product innovations or whatever in your advertising and marketing. Those are the reasons you list those because it allows people an out. It gives them an excuse to buy because now they can show it to others, hey, it's got this, this, and this, therefore it's a good idea. Let's get it. That's why all this is, is geared towards appealing to the emotions because it plants the seed. It gets things started in the purchase process. So if you see posts on social media and articles in newspapers and magazines and online that talk about why engagement is so important, that's what they're really trying to do. They're trying to focus on the emotional response and lead that along the path to intellectualizing or rationalizing that purchase. But if you've got to plant the seed with the emotion first, and we'll talk a little bit about that later on in terms of how you apply that in your marketing activity and how you reach that emotional peak and how you convert that emotion over into something a little more reasonable in terms of marketing. Now, in theory, if you're going to spur purchase and you're trying to appeal to the emotional component of people's behavior, you would want to find something that's universally appealing. And when you're doing right brain or what we now call customer insight research, you're trying to elicit what base emotion most aligns with the brand and with the purchase and the item that you're trying to sell. So we ask a lot of questions about how do you feel about this? How do you think about this? What comes to mind first? What things are really driving you to like this product? It's amazing that Facebook has been able to focus in on this like thing because it's really directly at the core of the emotional response you want. They look at a picture, they look at an article, they look at a name, they look at a video, and they like it. It's as pure and blatant and clear-cut as you can get. It's not a, this is interesting. There's no interesting button. There's not a, I think this is fascinating button, or I can sell this to my friends button. It's a like button. It's simple. I like it. Therefore, I'm going to buy it if I get a chance, or I'm going to download it, or I'm going to share it with somebody, or I'm going to tell somebody about it. It's a very simple direct core drill right down into the emotional component of what it is you're seeing and a direct response feedback of a like. That's exactly what you're looking for. So when we do research, and this is both qualitative and quantitative, 
you want to see if you can strip away all the rest of the language that goes with all this and helps intellectualize things and get down to the emotional core of the response. Sometimes that involves what is not said. What is unsaid when you're doing your analysis is often more important than what the respondents actually said. When we do long-form interviews, there is a lot of hemming and hawing and I'm thinking and dead space. That reaction is almost as critical to us understanding what it is they want to tell us than what they actually say. So we listen very carefully to those interviews and we find out exactly what it is that emotional core is. And then we can apply that to messaging, to copy, to imagery, to media selection even. If you ask someone how they feel about a radio program or they how they feel about someone's voice or how they feel about the animal in an ad they saw, and they hesitate and they think they're trying to gin up a response that sounds intelligent, that sounds intellectual, that gives them a reason why they like that. You're not looking for the reason. You're looking for the whether they liked it or not, whether it spurred an emotional response. So if you can get to that, by what's unsaid, i.e. the length of that pause or the excuse they give while they're thinking, whatever, that stuff needs to be included in your analysis in order to be thorough and complete. Because if you just transcribe it and you just read the transcript, you're not going to get that because they don't even note the pauses in a lot of transcripts. What you'll need to do is actually listen to the recordings. We do this quite often. I'll spend hours listening to people's responses just to wait for the quiet spots. And often if you're conducting these interviews, if you simply ask a question and let it lay there. Don't follow up, don't assure, don't apologize. Just throw it out there and let it land. You will see that that emotion will come back out to fill that quiet spot that you've left for them. So it's a really good spur to getting at the emotional response that you want without ever having to say anything. This also cuts down on bias, which is inherent in almost any research you do especially when they're all conducted by one person because there's not a control involved. We try and work out all the bias in other ways and, and eliminate a lot of that, but it's always going to creep in there to some degree, which is why a lot of our confidence levels are never above about 95% to account for that bias. Most people, if they tell you there's a 100% level of confidence in their research, have no clue what they're doing. Nobody can promise 100%. It's either yes or it's no, unless they had two respondents and they both responded the same way. That's about the only way. Anything with a reasonable pool of respondents is not going to give you 100% anything. You get about 95% confidence. And the more information you have, the higher that confidence can go. And that's only not only more respondents, but it's more data points from those respondents. It can be more questions answered by those respondents. Everything is a data point. And the more of those you can gather, the higher your confidence level will be. Um, everyone in the world has what we call emotional editors. They're the ones that are trying to quiet the emotions, the little angel on the shoulder that says, you really don't need that. You should spend the money on something like food. Um, that's the emotional editor trying to quell those emotions and allowing you to rationalize or derationalize the purchase. If you can smooth the pathways for those editors after jumpstarting the emotional response, your purchase is almost assured because you've given the little emotional angel, all the ammunition they need to say, oh, this is a good idea. Look, it's got vitamin A, vitamin B, vitamin C. It's good for you. The fact that it's a sugar-laden cereal doesn't mean anything to that person. All they've seen is the list of fine, healthy ingredients that they put right up on front of the box. You're giving that emotional pathway away down the path of benefits so that they can rationalize the purchase when really it's, I just like it. That's all they need. And most people will, will take that path 
in a millisecond, but you've got to make sure that you've planted the seed emotionally first to get it started. If you have, then simply laying out the benefits and features will lead them to the purchase behavior that you really want. And that's what you're looking for. Now, what is it you need to really succeed at doing a lot of this? How do you apply it to your marketing? We'll give you some examples very quickly. If I'm doing research and I hear that there is a particular feeling coming through about a brand repeatedly, say everybody says, oh, isn't that lovely or isn't that cute or isn't that warm or boy, that looks just like my house because it's so homey. Those are very warm, positive, emotional responses to something. Now, if you drill down on that, you'll notice that they were looking at a photograph of maybe a very plush sofa in round yellow lighting and in very comfortable environment and very quiet and very stable. And you'll notice that all those attributes come into play in the words they're using to describe it. Warm or cozy, all those things center around being able to be comfortable and to be safe and to be quiet and, and centered. Now, if you can take that brand and offer people those emotions through the products or through the company, you're going to resonate with those people who like cozy and who like safe and who like welcoming and who like warm. And they're going to say that I really would like to purchase this. And then once you've gotten them to like you, to like what you're purchasing, then you plant those little, you pave that little pathway all the way down with the benefits. Well, the sofa is nice and warm and cozy because it's made of natural materials and it's made of Egyptian cotton, so it's soft and we've sprayed it with this special stuff so it doesn't stain. Give them all the reasons to buy the thing intellectually and the emotions will fill in the gaps. So finding those emotional triggers and using them in the copy, using them in the media selection, using them in, in the headlines and in social media posts and other outreach efforts in your direct mail, in the headlines, in the letter, pulling all those strings together to keep that emotional roller coaster going and to pave that path with all those nice intellectual paving stones to get them to purchase is really the essence of good marketing and good customer-centric marketing, especially because that's what we're all trying to do. Now, when we come back, we'll talk about how to apply some of those research data points directly to your marketing and how to test for it to see if it's actually working. We'll be back after these words from our sponsor, ChoicePowerSolutions.com. Nobody likes to think about their electric bill, right? It's just another bill, and you pay it without really thinking about it. That approach could be costing you thousands of dollars a year, but you have a choice. You can choose who supplies your power from a huge list of providers nationwide. Choice Power Solutions can help you find the best rate offered, switch your provider, and start saving you money today, all for free. If you're a business owner and pay your own energy bills, start saving today and lock in your new rate for up to three years. Visit www.choicepowersolutionsmd.com today, select your rate, and we'll handle the rest. Start saving today. Visit www.choicepowersolutionsmd.com And we're back with The Marketing Doctor. Before the break, we were talking about how using emotional triggers and paving the emotional pathway to get around those emotional editors will lead respondents down the path to purchase. 
and how your brand can take advantage of what's in that research data to find what those triggers are, to find what that emotional pathway needs to consist of, and to drive your respondents down the road to purchase your products or services. Now, we mentioned media selection in several of those instances, and I wanted to explain what was meant by that. If you are reaching people who are older and perhaps uh, not as technologically involved as younger folks might be, media selection becomes even more critical. If you plan an entirely social media-based campaign around emotional triggers for the elderly, you will grab a very small audience because they are not glued to their little candy bar phones like younger folks are. They use them to communicate outwards, to receive phone calls, to view photographs and videos, and they like cat videos and fun things as much as anybody. But your timing is different for the elderly, your messaging is different for the elderly, and certainly the platform is different for the elderly. You're not likely to get a bunch of retirees if you're using LinkedIn. It's not going to work. Snapchat, probably not. You might get a few with Instagram because they like photographs. Again, like everyone else, the engagement is very high with photographs and videos. So you want to try and key your media selections, not only to the audience, but to the emotional triggers that audience possesses. So um, you can use this to determine the length of your copy, the direction of your copy, how colloquial you can be, how familiar you can be in your copy how well you know the audience will speak to this as much as anything else, but those are media selections driven by the emotional triggers of the audience, and you gain that through this customer insight research. Um, the, the data can be used for quite a while on some of this emotional research because people's emotions don't typically change. Unless you have done something to change them or someone else outside of your control has done something to change them, Typically, unless you're doing campaign polling or political work, you're worried about opinions that have been formed and die-cast in stone for a long time, and all you're doing is dredging them up and revealing them. They're not changing them. They're not newly formed. They're simply there waiting for you to find them. They have a long expiration date on this data. You can go two or three years using the same audience data. As long as the audience hasn't changed, the product hasn't changed, the brand hasn't shifted or moved, you can go back to this time and time again and it's a terrific investment to have this in your pocket as a marketer because you make it once and you don't have to go back and revisit it unless you want new, different, specific information that you didn't capture the first time. Most of our engagements elicit data that can be used for up to five years with a high degree of confidence. And we like the fact that we're really only doing this once for companies, but we can feed off of it for years in terms of going back to the data to find out what it is we need to guide a campaign, to guide a media selection, to guide some copy. I'll play these things before I go on a photo shoot to make sure we're doing the casting properly for a video or for a print ad. We're making sure we're getting the emotional triggers that resonate with that audience buried in that image and buried in that photograph to make sure that everything is going according to the way it should be. It's, it's much, much easier to make these decisions, to make these casting calls, to make these uh, informational decisions when you have something to guide you. It certainly makes life easier and it makes things much more exact. All this emotional talk, does that mean that intellectually based ads don't work? I don't think it does. I think it means that those intellectual arguments are laying the foundation for the emotional trigger, but that the trigger is buried. You have to see past what's on the page or what's in the blog or what's on the video and understand that the meta message is the emotional trigger. 
Some of this is very difficult to discern, and sometimes it's missing entirely. Those are the ones that usually flop, because they're not touching people's emotions. They're simply giving them the reasons, but they can explain the reasons all they want to, but they're not passionate about it. Humans have this distinct sense of what passion looks like and what feels like and what it sounds like. When someone is describing to you something wonderful, you sense that emotion coming through, not in the words they're saying, but in how they're saying it and what they're saying and what they're not saying. So you can try intellectualizing all you want to, and B2B ads and marketing fall into this category all the time. We try and take B2B and make it as human and as personal as possible because a business never bought anything. A person bought something that worked in that business and decided it was a good thing. So what you have to realize is the emotion's still there. You're just giving the committee, and again, in B2B purchase, there's typically seven people that get in on that decision. You're giving the committee all the good, right reasons that they can explain to their boss, their board, whatever, why this is a good idea. What you're not giving them is the reason to tell anyone about it. The reason to make the purchase is the like. If you're leaving the like out, you're simply giving them a laundry list of benefits and features, and this is not going to be nearly as effective for B2B or B2C. If you're trying to reach people's emotions, companies like Coke and Gap and some of those things have got this down to a science. They don't even have to put copy in the ad. They just run an image and a website, and they're good because all the groundwork has been done. You don't need a lot of rationalization to buy a t-shirt, but you need an emotional reason to go out and find why that color or that shape or that style is worth spending $35 for. That's what you're trying to justify. So the emotions take total control in that particular regard, and the ads function very, very well. They are very effective. They move a lot of t-shirts. But if that's not what you're trying to do, if you're trying to convince a committee of seven or eight decision makers that this piece of software for $25,000 is really going to help our business, you'd better be appealing to the emotions underlying all the nice tech speak that you throw over top of it to make it seem worth it because the justification is only half the story. The other story is why this purchase is going to make them happy, why they're going to like this purchase. The reason they're going to like this purchase for something like software is because they're going to look like the hero, because it works, because it's easy. Everyone's going to love them because they bought it. People seek approval. People seek emotional verification, validation. Those are the hidden messages in there. You'll be the hero if you buy this. That's the message underneath it all. The fact that it's got all these good features allows everyone else to like it and make you the hero. That's really what you're shooting for in all this. Make the recipient the hero. And you don't have to do it as overtly as I've just done it in that example. Um, car manufacturers do this all the time. You're going to be seen in a better light by your peers. All the guys in the office are going to look out the window and say, gee, that's a cool car. Or the two girls that pull up next to you at a light are going to look over at you and smile because you're driving this extravagantly expensive car. It's not the case, guys. People that emote a certain way can pull up on a moped and get those smiles. It's really not about the car. But they're not going to allow you to believe that conclusion. They're going to tell you the lie that it's the new Nissan that's making you pull up at that light and have those girls smile at you. It has nothing to do with it. You are who you are. Their emotional trigger is more of, gee, this guy's got enough money to afford a new car. It doesn't really matter what kind it is. It's a trigger for them to look over and say, hey, all right, this is something we might be interested in. Because of under other factors, underlying factors that you can't see and that aren't part of that ad. But the advertiser is under the obligation to convince you that buying this product will make you sexier, more attractive, higher esteem in the eyes of your peers, will make you more popular. 
Those are all desirable emotional traits. They are not, gee, you're going to get better wear on your tires and it only needs the oil changed once a year because of our synthetic production technology and yada, yada, yada. All that stuff is superfluous. All you've got to do is make sure everybody thinks they're the hero. They're the winner. They're the popular kid. They're the cheerleader. They're the football captain. That's what everybody's looking for. That's the emotional validation that people are seeking when they buy almost anything. From razors to bread to chickens. Anything you've seen on television or heard on radio or seen in a print ad, somewhere along the line there's an emotional kernel that makes you respond to that ad in a way that's positive emotionally and that says, this is what I want. I liked it. It made me feel good. That's what it's all about. You wonder why people go on shopping sprees when they're feeling depressed. It's because it's validation. If I get all this nice stuff, people are going to think better of me and I'm not going to be depressed anymore. The credit card companies and the retailers have preyed upon us for years in this regard. And we feed right into it because they've understood that the emotional triggers are what really drive people. You don't care if you're saving half price or not. It's an excuse. It's a rationalization to go out and look at new things that may make you popular, may make you successful, may make you feel and look younger, may drive someone to like you better. That's all we're looking for is emotional validation. And at the root of every very effective marketing campaign or advertising campaign you've ever seen is that root emotional trigger that says, this will make you better. All you have to do is buy. That's the basis for all of it. And we uncover what those triggers are in our research by getting inside the customer's head and finding out what it is they really want, what it is that makes them feel better. Now, customer service has a great deal to do with this pre and post purchase because now everybody has access to the basic pathway paving stone information. They can find the benefits, they can see reviews, they can see that it made other people happy in those reviews. But to really get down to the core of it, those customer service people have to respond in the same fashion and this, using the same emotions that got you to call them in the first place. And that's where the trick lies in that. And we're going to have, as a guest on this program, a customer service expert whose identity will remain secret until later, who will tell us all about how to reach those emotional coals and how to get to that core emotion in your customer service and how you can use it as an effective weapon in your marketing. We're just about out of time. I'm the marketing doctor, Dave Polis, and we're just about to the end of this episode. I appreciate you listening. Please visit www.themarketingdoc.com for all your marketing and intelligence needs.